Well, I want to welcome everybody back to our fifth week in this series. Welcome all of you at 95th Street Campus and all of you at the Bolingbroke Campus. Uh, This has been so fun for me. The chapters of 33 and 34 of the book of Exodus describe and help us understand how we can know and enjoy the beauty of God, maybe more than any other section of Scripture. And it ends with a bang. You know, sometimes you may anticipate that the the drama has been so good it can't continue to be good. Oh, it is. Just wait. We have quite a special uh, section of Scripture for us to study. I want to begin by telling you something that happened in my life 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I was at my old church, and after preaching, I went and I was greeting some folks, and this guy came up to me, and he said, Jeff Griffin, he said, you mentioned in your sermon you graduated from, you went to Buffalo Grove High School. He said, so did I. And as I looked at him and saw him go, so did I, I'm like, oh, I know who you are. It dawned on me that I was standing in front of the bully who tormented me back when I was a freshman in high school. Can you believe that? The guy is, is a monster. I, I he was a junior when I was a freshman. He was a football player, a mountain of a man, quite literally twice my weight. I mean, his size so intimidated me. And I felt, as I'm standing there 10 years ago, all these feelings I haven't felt since my freshman year come back into me. And I'm like, oh, I wanted to run, you know. And back in those days, he would grab me, pull me into a corner, stare me into his eye. I remember looking into his eyes and thinking, What kind of ugliness finds joy in making someone else miserable? But he would intimidate me and threaten me. And I dreaded this human being more than any person on planet Earth. And now he's at my church. And uh, he he said words that I didn't see coming. Uh, Well, I, 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 I first, I told him, I go, I remember you. And... uh, He's like, you do? And I just said it. I said, yeah. When I was a freshman, you were a junior, and you bullied me. And he then kind of had this nervous laugh. And he goes, you were that skinny blonde kid I bullied. Yeah. And he laughed. And then he said these words. He said, Jeff, back then, I didn't know Jesus. Today I do. And Jesus has changed me. <laughs> All right, and you right away said, that's so beautiful. I was like, yeah, right. I, I, in this particular moment, found myself the skeptic. Though technically I would have said, yes, I believe Jesus changes people. This was, this was ugliness in a soul like I had never seen before. And for me at that moment to believe that God had removed that ugliness and replaced it with beauty, I just... Yeah, right. Well, later that week in the mail, the snail mail, I received this large envelope, and it was from him. And it was a letter of repentance. And he said, Jeff, I laughed when we talked about me being a bully. He goes, that was because of nervousness. He said, that's not funny. And he said, I want to repent of my sin. I sinned against you. Would you please forgive me of my sin? And then he went on to say that he, as a Christ follower, connects with God over music. 
He's a musician, a songwriter. And he says, sometimes I, I convey my heart to God in writing a song. And he said, you'll notice in this envelope, I've included a CD of a song I wrote this week for you. And it was a song, I grabbed the CD, I put it in the stereo and I listened. This beautiful song of repentance. A song of crying out to God for grace and receiving God's forgiveness. And then the lyrics turned to me. And it was a cry, Jeff, would you forgive me for the sin? I mean, how do you not forgive a guy who's written you a song for crying out loud, you know? So I wrote back and I said, hey, let's get together. I want to hear more of what God's doing in your life. And sure enough, I was stunned. The ugliness was gone. And the beauty of Jesus Christ was so evident in this man that he has become one of my closest friends. He, I invited him. He joined my small group. And for seven years, every week, we would, with our group, study the Word of God together. He and I became a little bit of a ministry team, if you will, uh, uh, dog and pony show, you know, uh, I don't know who was the dog and who was the pony, but we would, uh, he would strum the guitar and do song and I would preach and we went to a camp in Wisconsin and ministered together there. We ministered together at a, at a country club of, of, that he belonged to. We went and ministered in churches big and small. We went to India and ministered on a missions trip together. And this man has the beauty of Jesus so powerfully displayed in his life that he inspires me to do likewise. Now, what's the odds of that? You know, that the guy I fear more than any human being on the planet would show up and become one of my best friends. That's a God thing. You know, when the Lord won his soul, the Lord said, send him to Jeff's church. This is going to be fun, you know. And God (laughs) sent him so that I would see. I mean, it was like, if if you can change him, You can change anybody. Let me ask you, do you believe that God changes people? Do you believe God can change you? Because you need changing. You've got a mixed bag of ugliness and beauty in your soul. Yes, some of it's beauty. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus and some of his very nature is shining in your life. But there's still ugliness. You know, ask the person next to you if you don't see it. Maybe they can help you out. And God wants to address that and change that and make you more beautiful on the inside. We're about to learn that. You may be a little confused, say, wait a minute, I thought this series was all about God's beauty. Now you're talking about us being beautiful. Yes. The great thing about this particular message is we're about to discover that those who obsess about the Lord's beauty, who seek to see him, know him, worship him, find his beauty rubbing off on them as we find this principle now on display in the life of Moses. So just as a refresher, Moses wanted to see the beauty of God, and so he cried out, show me your glory, Lord. And the Lord said, yes, said, you can't see me fully or you'd die, Moses. It's too much for you to handle. And so God guided Moses to a cave on Mount Sinai. God covered his eyes to protect him from seeing. God passed in front of Moses singing a song about His attributes, the attributes of God were displayed, were sung to Moses. It's called the divine attribute formula. It's the self-disclosure of God. These beautiful words that describe God's heart are the most commonly repeated piece of Scripture that's repeated in Scripture. And we studied them together. 
after God had passed by singing of his attributes, God allowed Moses to see once he had dipped below the horizon. And Moses stepped out of the cave and looked around and he saw the afterglow, God's beauty on display, reflected on the sky, kind of like the sun that has dipped below the horizon still displays its beauty on the the sky. So we discovered that we can see God's beauty reflected in the world around us. Though we too can't see him directly, if we're thinking and observant in the people and in relationships and in the wonder of outer space and the wonder of earthly nature, we will see attributes of God. God says, the heavens declare the glory of God. My attributes are seen in what has been made. And so we look for God's beauty. And when we find God's beauty, we learn uh, we must worship him and celebrate him. That's what Moses did after his knees were knocking and he's looking at the glory in the sky and he's remembering these words. He fell on his face and he worshiped God. And we must worship the Lord. If our enjoyment of God's beautiful world doesn't end in worship, it can be bad. And so Moses worshiped. He worshiped and worshiped and eventually got up and started down the mountain to reconnect with his friends. And that's where we pick up now. Reading out of Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he was not aware that his face was radiant. (laughs) Because Because he had spoken with the Lord. Meeting with the Lord had made his face radiant. We learned that God's beauty, his glory, was almost always displayed in Scripture with light. That this bright, beautiful, radiant light would shine forth from God. And Moses had experienced that. And somehow it's rubbed off on him. Now Moses' face is glowing. He doesn't realize it. But he's about to see his friends freak out. In fact, let me read verse 30. When Aaron... That's his brother. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. That's reasonable. If you were like glowing like a light bulb, I'd run away from you, you know? But Moses called to them, and so Aaron and all the leaders of the community, they came back, maybe slowly, carefully, but they came back to Moses, and he spoke to them. Moses preached. Moses shared what he had learned about God, the divine attribute formula, the afterglow. Can you imagine the power of that sermon? As Moses describes his learnings and glows with the very beauty of God as he preaches. Wow, they would never forget that. And then Moses did something afterwards that's curious. He put a veil on his face. And Moses kind of made this his part of his outfit. This veil protected people from seeing and freaking out any more than they needed to. But the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 3, it mentioned it also prevented them from seeing Moses' radiance fade away. The more Moses was away from the Lord, the more his glow diminished. And he didn't want people making fun of him for glowing less than he did last week. But there was a routine set up in Moses' life, and that is when he'd go to meet with God, he'd take off the veil. Meeting with God would pump up the wattage of his face. He'd go and teach the people while glowing, 
And after he was done teaching, he'd put the veil back on until the next time. We see this uh, pointed out in verse 34. It says, Whenever Moses entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, and then when he told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw his face was radiant. So whenever, this was an ongoing thing, whenever, here's how it went. Go meet with the Lord, get radiant, tell the people what God had said while glowing, and then he put the veil back on. Fascinating passage. And here's the question I have for you. Why? Why did God do this miracle? It is a miracle, you know. Faces don't normally radiate light. But they did this time. God made Moses' face glow. And the answer to why is that God is trying to teach Moses something, teach them something back then, and teach us something today. What is God trying to teach us? He's trying to teach us that those who cry out, God, show me your glory. Those who practice pressing into God's presence and meditating on how good he is, on meeting with him in Bible study and in prayer, those people inevitably start reflect, not glowing physically as Moses did, but spiritually they start to embody the same attributes that they were just admiring in God. That happens. You may say, are you sure we're supposed to apply it to our lives? I know we are because three biblical authors all take this event in Exodus and challenge us to live it out. The first was King David. King David in Psalm 34 verse 5, he said this, those who look upon the Lord are radiant. Do you see that? It's talking to us. If you're one of those who look upon the Lord's beauty, you will be radiant. Uh, the great prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 60 verse 5, he, he does it in the form of a command. Look upon the glory of the Lord and be radiant. Uh, the great apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he states it in this way. We who contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image. All three of these authors have the same event in Moses' life in mind as they admonish us to seek God's glory. I love how Paul does it. Paul's realist. These guys say, look at the Lord, and the, and the real technically languaged people among you would say, we can't look at the Lord. Remember, if we looked at him, we'd die. Paul acknowledges what they mean is contemplate. It's in the brain. Think about, study the beauty of God. And the more you study it in the Bible, the more you think about him in meditation and prayer, the more you contemplate his beauty, the more you will be transformed into his image. Folks, this is an incredible principle that has been summarized by some theologians with a simple statement that I offer for your consideration. Next slide. We become what we worship. So simply stated, and it's so true. If you are a worshiper of the Lord, if you are a pursuer of his face, you see his glory, it delights you, and you worship and celebrate who he is, those very attributes you see in God will increasingly become you. In this principle of we become what we worship, unfortunately, it is true in the negative direction too. If you don't worship the Lord... Whatever it is that you worship, you'll become like it. 
Um, you know, people are all worshipers. You should know that. Every single human being on planet Earth is obsessed and focused and their life is all oriented around something. And that something that they're obsessed with, that they worship, is having more an effect on who they are than may, they may realize. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, they talked about idolatry, that people worshipped false gods in the form of statues. They would carve statues and worship them. And the, the power of what that does is seen in Psalm 135. This is speaking of statues, idols. It says these statues, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They got eyes, but they can't see. They got ears, but they can't hear. Look at this last statement. Those who make them will be like them. You become what you worship. If you worship an idol that is spiritually dead, you will become spiritually dead. If your idol is just lacking the the substance of life, you will lack the substance of life. N.T. Wright, who is a biblical scholar, he phrases it this way. He says, those who worship money, some people worship money, maybe a lot, will increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers, rather than treating them like human beings. Those who worship sex will begin to treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power will treat other people either as collaborators, competitors, or pawns to use. Folks, it's so true. What we worship affects who we are. We become what we worship. And uh, I would add, if you worship the loving and living God, you will become a person filled with love and life. And so how do we get on the positive side of this dynamic? We become what we worship. How do we really access the transformational power of worshiping God? I want to go back to 2 Corinthians 3.18 because there's a half of this verse I didn't share with you. I only read half the verse. The whole verse is so helpful. So let's go back. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this. I already read this part. We who contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right. Let me highlight this phrase, ever-increasing glory. Folks, this is what God wants to do in you. At first, it's just a little bit of his beauty in you. But with some time, it increases to a little more of his beauty in you. And with years, more and more and more of his beauty in you. This ever-increasing beauty in you is a dynamic that theologians call sanctification. Maybe you're familiar with that big term. Maybe you're not. Sanctification is simply God's zealous commitment to beautify his people. If you're a Christian, God is active and passionate about making you more like Jesus, to beautify you. Now, the amazing thing about God's invitation is that he says we can come as we are with all of the ugliness in us. You know, when we come to Jesus at first, we're a mess. I mean, we've got addictions and all kinds of nasty stuff. And the Lord says, you don't need to clean up at all. Come as you are. 
I will accept you and forgive you through the power of what Christ did on the cross. But God says, I love you just as you are, but I love you too much to leave you just as you are. And so God says, your whole Christian journey is going to be a journey of beautification, sanctification. And that's what we want. We want to be a part of this dynamic of change. And so the question comes, how? Let's move to the next slide. Here are three words that I think put together a powerful equation, if you will. In this case, sanctification is represented by the word transformation, right? That's what to be transformed means change, to grow, to be made more beautiful with increasing glory. There's sanctification. Contemplation, we've already talked about that. That's where we press into the presence of God, see, enjoy, and worship his beauty. But the word here, spirit, is something that's very important, and so far I haven't mentioned it. This change, this beautification, is a God thing. If you decide, I'm going to pull myself up on my bootstraps and I'm going to change me, you will fail. You don't have the power to make yourself more beautiful. Maybe a teeny little bit, but not like you really want. In fact, this passage, it says, this increasing glory which comes from the Lord. It's a God thing. And then it goes further to say, who is the Spirit? The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, comes into every single Christian. If you're a Christian, God lives in you. What's he doing there? Well, one of his main roles is to change you, is to sanctify you, is to beautify you. And if you have a posture of, I can do this on my own, you will fail. But if you humbly realize it's a God thing and you say, Lord, Holy Spirit of the living God, did you just see that? That was ugly. Change me. That reliance, that dependence, that clinging to the Spirit to change you is essential for sanctification to take place. But it's not just reliance on the Spirit. It's also you deciding to develop the habit of contemplating his glory. Here's the equation. The equation is spirit of God plus contemplation equals transformation. And folks, it works. The spirit of God will work in us as we have the daily habit. Some people call it a quiet time. Others call it a devotional time. Others call it meeting with God. It's 10, 20, 30 minutes where you set aside time to, through Bible study and prayer, contemplate the Lord's glory. The Spirit of God will use this time to change you. You may say, I don't get it. Why would spending time reflecting and meditating and learning about God's beauty make me more beautiful? I don't see the connection. I'll try to explain some of the dynamics that occur in me, and I'm speculating at this point, and it's a mystery how it all works. I don't claim to understand it fully. But one of the things I see is that as I obsess about God's beauty, as I'm preoccupied with the attributes that make him so amazing, those attributes seen in him become my ideal. Those who don't have God, they look to human people as their inspiration. I want to be like them. Well, that's great. But nobody serves as an ideal as high and lofty as God. 
And as I see those attributes in him, I just find my life oriented and directed towards that way of living. He becomes our ideal. That's one thing. The second thing is he becomes our motivation. You know, if you're going to change, you've got to be motivated. And nothing motivates like love. And when you meet with the Lord every day in Bible study and prayer, you fall in love with him. You just say, Lord, I love you more than life itself. And I want so bad to be able to just please you, the love of my life. And this zeal of love for the Lord begins to be the compelling motivation in your life. And so, folks, uh, there's just a little reflection on how I see this looking at God changing me. Maybe rather than speaking in abstractions, I should give an example. Yesterday, ready? I was beautiful a little bit, not on the outside, on the inside. Regarding parenting, I, I, I had a time of victory in parenting my son. Uh, Saturday morning, Jake had soccer game. We went to the soccer game. He lost the soccer game. We were leaving the soccer game. He was dejected. And he said, Dad, could we go to Cantini Park and climb on the tanks? You guys know Cantini Park in Wheaton. They've got like a dozen or more tanks, and Jake just loves it. And he said, Dad, Mom had wanted to take me this week, but it was raining, and we had to cancel, please. And I said, Jake, let's do it. And so we went, and you would have laughed. I'm climbing on these tanks, you know, almost broke my neck, but the two of us had so much fun. We had never been to the museum, but we went in, and this museum was amazing. They recreate, you know, the trenches of warfare. And Jake and I were like swept up in an adventure of like being there. It was awesome. And then after the museum, he and I were leaving and I say, hey, how about you and I do lunch at your favorite restaurant? McDonald's. He's not a high uh, fluting guy. We went to McDonald's. We had the best time. We had a glorious morning. And you say, man, Jeff, you got it right. Yeah, I don't normally, but I did this case. Why? I'll tell you why. I have a a perspective into my own soul that you don't have, and so let me let you in. I'm convinced I succeeded in being beautiful because earlier that morning I was inspired by the beauty in the Lord. Earlier in that morning before Jake woke up, I woke up and I went to meet with God in prayer. I've been going through the book of Hosea. I I so enjoyed Hosea that when I was done, I said, hey, this, this is like over the last week's, I'm going to do it again. So over the last weeks, I have gone through, I'm going through Hosea for the second time. And I, the day before, looked at Hosea 10. I transitioned into Hosea 11. I came upon verse 3. And I want to show you what I read yesterday morning. Uh, Andy here helped me put it on a picture that I think helps it become clear. Hosea 11.3. God's speaking of his people and it says, It was I, the Lord says, who taught them to walk, taking them by the hands, but they did not realize it was me. And I was just moved by this yesterday morning. I'm like, Lord, this is a glimpse into your father heart. Speaking of the people of Israel, but the same is true for us. He says, back when they were young, he said, I loved them so much that like a father grabs their kid's hand, so I helped them learn to walk. But God laments. They didn't even know that I was the one who was helping them. And I asked the question, Lord, is this true in my life? 
And as I prayed about it, I realized, absolutely, there's probably a thousand ways God, over my life, has tenderly fathered me. And I was oblivious to it. Ways that he taught me how to be courageous. And I didn't know it was him. He taught me joy when I didn't know joy. He taught me how to love people. He taught me how to preach. He taught me how to relate. He taught me so much. And I, I just turned in this glimpse of God's fatherly heart to prayer and opened up my prayer journal and started writing, writing God, thank you for a thousand ways you have shown up in my life and gently fathered me, holding me by the hands when I didn't even realize it was you. And I just said, Dad, Heavenly Father, you are the best dad in the world. I am so honored to be your son. Thank you. Unbelievable time with God. And then I go to hang out with my son, and he says, Dad, can we go to the tanks? And having reflected on the ideal of God's devoted fatherly love, it was natural for me to want to please my heavenly father by doing likewise to my boy. And I said, let's do it. Do you see? The contemplation of God's glory results in a little bit of that shining in and on us. Folks, it works. And so I challenge you. Be someone. You know, we we give the four priorities of our church. Pursue, connect, serve, reach. The scriptures challenge us to much, but we've realized these four are so central. And the first pursue is pursue him daily. That's spend time, a little bit of time, maybe 10 minutes if you're getting started. And Bible reading and prayer. You say, I'm terrible at that. I read it and I get nothing. Every one of us start that way. We all get nothing at first. But if you will persevere in the discipline, the practice, it will eventually become life-giving, life-transforming. And so, do you want to change? Do you want to get the ugly out and the beauty of God in? Contemplate, pursue, gaze, Look at his beauty, and you'll never be the same. This summer, my wife uh, and my daughter, Jora, they went on a missions trip with our church. Uh, They had read in the Navigator that there was a trip going to Haiti, and they decided to go. And they went, and it was life-changing for them. They came back, and they were so excited. And I asked, what was the highlight of your trip? And they said, seeing God change a life. And I suppose that is incredible to witness. What surprised me was that it wasn't a Haitian that was transformed. It was a Napervillian that was transformed. There was a young man, a college student named Mike Dewey, uh, who had heard or read about the trip and decided to go. Mike Dewey was new to our church, going to our 95th Street campus. And he said, I want to go on that trip. He went on that trip. And he's forever changed. After I pray, we got a little video that will tell Mike's story and a song. This is a chance for us to celebrate. God is in the business of changing people. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're sick of being 
like we are and we want to be made more beautiful, we long to reflect to the world around us, to our family, our spouses, our friends, our co-workers. We long to reflect your way, your character, your attributes. And so God, change us. Teach us how to press into your presence like Moses did and cry out, show me your glory. Teach us how to find you, Jesus, in the Bible and in prayer. And God, may our preoccupation with your beauty make us more beautiful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mike, high school Mike, um, pretty much had no regards to others. Um, I pretty much wrote my own story or so I thought. I was successful with academics, sports, friends. Uh, I never had a problem like talking to girls. So I pretty much had everything I could ask for. Uh, God was not a part of my life. I would go to church, but I would never take away anything besides a good feeling when I was leaving. I ended up kind of stumbling across that the compass was going to Haiti, and this was maybe like a month before we were scheduled to leave. While we were there, it was just like absolutely just like, I couldn't even put words to what I was feeling and experiencing because it was nothing like I'd ever seen before. And I thought, man, there's no way God's here right now. How could he possibly be? And I was talking to one of the other team members, and she was like, oh, like, so she's asking everyone, like, their story, and she asked me, so when did you accept Christ? And I was like, I haven't really. She was like, well, what's holding you back? And I was like, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I don't know. I, I explained it as I was like a loading bar where I was almost like like 98% there, but just like that final jump was, I don't know, I just couldn't make it. And so she was like, all you have to do is say yes. Like, just say yes. I was like, what does that even mean, just say yes? How are you just going to tell me, like, what, what, that's like the most vague thing I've ever heard. And she's like, you'll know, you'll know. And I was like, oh, that Sunday, which was our last day in Haiti, we went to church, and that day was just, it was something different about it. The uh, pastor was going to, to speak, and I had no clue what they were saying. They're talking in Creole. I'm just praying, and I just, I just know at that moment, I'm like, I just, like, I just, I just said yes, which was, I was like, yes, like, I don't want to live a life without Christ. Like, Christ literally is the only way. I was crying, like, and it was like an ugly, like, snotty cry, but like, it was just so awesome. I just felt so much peace inside and like the most amazing moment that I could even try to uh, try to explain. The Mike Dewey now, as opposed to the, you know, the me before, I just have a, a bigger purpose where I realize like everything is not about me. I read John 3.30 and I just like, kind of stumbled across it one day and it just like made so much sense when it said he must become greater and I must become less. Like it's so simple to the point and I think that's how I'd, what I'd been shifting towards. Before I would be like, oh, there's, there's no way I can become like that. But that's true, there is no way. It's God is the one who's transforming you. It's to sit down and think about it and to think where I was and to think how long God has had this plan working is absolutely, absolutely breathtaking. Like, God views me as, like, a special individual who, who 
means something. It's it's awesome.